Uh, Today's reading is from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the the Lord. Good morning. Very nice to be with you. And before I get cracking this morning, I want to give you a quick word of explanation for a site that you're about to see. Um, Very recently, I've had surgery done on my eyes. And um, at the moment, I'm in a very uncomfortable place where I'm seeing two of everything. And um, it's only a temporary condition. By Christmas, this will be sorted out. Um, and for, to make my life easier, um, I'm going to wear a pair of glasses which blocks out one eye. Uh, it does make me look a bit like Long John Silver on a day out. And I, I did think about getting uh, a stuffed parrot to put on my left shoulder and preaching with one leg strapped up behind my back. Um, but I thought an explanation would suffice. If you find out uh, what your friends are like, when you uh, find yourself in this sort of condition, you find out what their pastoral skills are like. So I was interested that one of my best friend's reaction was to tell me a joke and just to ask me, Rupert, do you know what you call a one-eyed dinosaur? So I said, no, I haven't a clue. And he said, do you think he saw us? (laughs) I thought one advantage of my present condition is that when I next see the Bishop of London, which I'm due to do in about five weeks' time, and she says, well, how's it going at St. Michael's? I could say, well, from what I can see, the congregation doubled overnight. (laughs) Okay, let's pray that God would speak to us, shall we? Father God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that you're here with us this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts to you, that you would speak into our lives and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
as you appreciate, uh, as I'm rather limited in what I'm able to read at the moment, I can read about four minutes in an hour, um, I've had to approach a sermon prep in a slightly different way. So rather than going through uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 line by line, uh, what I'm going to do is talk about uh, three major decisions that we could make, which all come from this letter, 1 Thessalonians, which would lead to us uh, hearing from God at the end of our days, well done. If someone was to ask you what the ultimate purpose of your life is, or the ultimate direction of your life, I think one way we could put it would be our ultimate purpose is actually to live our lives in such a way that when we do stand before God, that is exactly what he will say to us, well done. And I'm confident that these three decisions which need to be made increase the likelihood of hearing that well done uh, a lot. And the, fir the first decision is this one. We need to decide every day to start right. We need to make a daily decision to start right. And by that I mean we need to decide, each one of us, that we're going to trust Jesus and follow him this day. Now evidently that is what the Thessalonians decided to do because in chapter 1 Paul says to them, that they put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and turned to God to serve the living and true God. And you might say to me, and you wouldn't be wrong, isn't that rather an obvious point? Well, it is. But we shouldn't ignore the obvious. And it's a mistake to think that we can just assume that this is true for each one of us today. Many years ago now, when I was leading a church in Salisbury, down in that neck of the woods, um, the army is ever-present. It used to be the centre of UK land forces. So in my congregation would be really quite a number of army personnel. And I remember at the end of one particular service, this man called Jeremy coming up to me, and he was shaking with a mixture of rage and passion, really. And I, I asked him, what, what's, the story, what's going on? And this was the story he had to tell. He, he said, well, Rupert, my wife is, is a, a very keen Christian, has been for years. And wherever we've been posted in, in the UK, I've gone with her to church. And he said, pretty much the story of our lives is that wherever we've been to worship, they've spotted me in the congregation because, and I, I mean, I could have told him why, he was very neatly turned out. He, he would always have shine on his shoes that you could see about a mile away. That's what they do in the army. And uh, he wore cavalry tours with a neat crease. And very quickly, you know, the leadership would think, here's a guy we can give a load of work to. And so he said, so I've been treasurer of at least five churches in stints of three years. And he said, the reason I'm so impassioned and so shaken up today and, and finding it so difficult is because I've discovered this morning that I've completely missed out. For over 25 years, he said, I have been going to church and I never realized this is all about Jesus Christ. It, it's all about a connecting 
a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I could tell you at least five other stories that are very, very similar. People who were churchgoers and hadn't made the connection. And so you will forgive me for starting at this very simple point. Because I've discovered over time it is entirely possible to be a, a habitual churchgoer and not make the connection. In fact, shortly before the outbreak of the Second World War, uh, the Church of England commissioned a report which was published, but it got buried because of the international events that were to overtake the country. And it was called Towards the Conversion of England. And it was a strategy document. It's actually a very good one. And one of the observations that was made there was that England as a country will not be converted to Christ by filling up churches with people. But England will be converted when the people who are in the churches are full of Christ. And that step had to be established. And it's true for all of us. You, you can't enjoy the Christian life without Christ. And that means making a, a decision every day, every day, that we're going to trust him. I've often found thinking about that moment where the disciples are in the boat and Jesus walked on the water, remember this, towards them and Simon Peter shouts out, Lord, if that's you, ask me to follow you, to walk on the water, you know? And that's what he does. He gets out of the boat and he takes a few steps and then he begins to sink. And very often the preachers will major on the fact that why he sinks. But I prefer to focus our attention on the fact that he walks on water at all. You know, not many people can say they've done that. You know, if I asked you to name all those people who walked on the moon, you can probably name the first party, but you can't name astronauts number seven, eight, and nine that did it, most likely. If I asked you to name the people who have ever walked on water, being a biblically literal lot, you can name all two of them. <laughs> And you know, if I was Peter, I wouldn't be talking to my children and grandchildren about how I sank. I'd be boasting about the three steps I took which, when I didn't sink. Why am I saying that? Because the attitude that he had when he walked on the water trusting in Jesus is exactly the attitude you and I are called to have to follow him every day. To exercise that kind of trust, which is another word for faith. And what I've found and what you will have experienced is you will know some followers of Christ who on a good day decide to follow him, but on a bad day don't. I remember being at university with, uh, and knowing a, an amazing girl, but the trouble with her, she was a Christian, the trouble was that when she was on fire for Christ, she was radiantly on fire for Christ, but when she was distant, she was uh, appallingly distant, and you never knew which you were going to meet. That isn't the way to get a well done at the end of your life. Make a decision every day that you're going to follow him. I love the story, which is a true story, uh, which took place in Australia, where there was a guy called Alf Stanway, who was a bishop. Now, you know that Australia is an absolutely huge country, and the diocese on the map are similarly huge. The distances are colossal. So when this Bishop Guy, Bishop Stanway, found himself driving from a meeting somewhere in, in, in the outback. When he remembered, oh, somewhere a few hundred miles in that direction, one of my clergy, he thought, now would be a good day 
to visit him. Why don't I? So he went off track and he found the vicarage and he turned up unannounced around midday. And when he rang the doorbell, uh, the priest came to the door and was absolutely taken aback and shock horrid to see his bishop standing there. It was about midday and he looked very disheveled, but he thought, well, I better invite him in. You can't really keep him on the doorstep. So he invited him in for a cup of coffee and whatever they had. Maybe it was a beer, probably more likely to be a beer. And uh, they spent a, an okay time together. But when he was showing the bishop to his car at the end of their time together, he thought, well, I, I need to give him some kind of an explanation for the disheveled mess that he finds me in. So um, rather like a naughty child who has been caught out, he didn't really know what to say. So he, he, he said, well, Bishop, I just want to explain to you um, how it is that when you dropped in on me unannounced, you find me looking a bit, you know, disheveled and stubble and all that kind of thing. He said, the thing is, Bishop, uh, some days I shave and some days I, I don't shave. And quick as a flash, the, the Bishop looked him in the face and said, well, let me tell you something. He said, many, many, many years ago, I made a lifetime decision that every day of my life, I would shave. He said, every year, so far as I can work out, that saved me 365 individual decisions. And the point he was making is, is the point that uh, we need to make a decision to follow Christ every day and resolve to stick by it. And that's, if you're doing a shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I, when you get out of bed in the morning, you're cruising for a bruising. We have to start right. So, okay, a quick health check. Um, check your connection with the Father. You know, we know, probably most of us, how frustrating it is when you're online and you lose your internet connection or you're on your mobile and the signal goes down and you're cut off and something has to happen to put it right. I'm standing here, you're sitting there. We cannot simply assume that we're connected with the Father. You have to make sure you're connected. And if you've lost connection, follow what I call the lost child procedure. You know, if you lose your children ever, or you've been lost as a child, it's good to understand what uh, some kind of, well, what's the rescue plan? And a rescue plan should be, I think, go back to the place you were last connected. Go back to the Father and claim a connection again. However long in your memory that is you have a return ticket God the Father said he won't reject those who come to him so don't don't um, spurn that invitation another thing we can do is keep yourself in the fold you know I've got a piece of paper here represents you and me and if I keep it enfolded in this book clever illustration this you can't get at it it is safe Keep yourself enfolded in God's family. But if you separate, it, it's incredibly vulnerable and, and can be destroyed in a, in a moment. We're not meant to do this Christian walk in isolation. And frankly, a decision to follow Christ on your own will not be enough. We need the Holy Spirit's help in everything I'm talking about this morning. We also need each other's help in everything I'm talking about. Now, that's my first point. It is a very elementary point, but we need to start right. You can't live a Christian life without Christ. The second point comes directly from the very beginning of chapter 4, which we had read to us. 
And this is the point over which I think most people um, stumble most. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know how we instructed you how to live life in order to please God. And my second point is this, we not only believe the good news, now we believe the good news, we're commanded to live the good life. And it's a most neglected point, this. And what somehow or other, it's as if the followers of Christ have decided to drop this point. But Paul doesn't. And he rams home to the Thessalonians that a decision to follow Christ isn't just a decision about what we believe. It's a commitment as to how we will behave. And as I read and reread and prayed over and thought about chapter 4, I was shocked, and I think you would be too, by the way that Paul weighs in with his opinions about the lifestyle choices of the Thessalonians. And the really standout thing in this chapter is, A, that he should talk about lifestyle choices at all, but B, that he should insist upon it that what he's writing has every bit as much authority from God as when he tells the gospel. He says, I'm telling you this, these are the commands of God, the Holy Spirit, and obedience comes with the territory. In fact, there's a contradiction in terms. If we call ourselves a follower of Christ, a Christian, someone who belongs to Christ, and yet we choose to live in a way that Christ would be ashamed of. You know, there are lots of illustrations I could give. If you decided that you were going to join the army, you would quickly be given a set of instructions and uniform, and you'd be trained to be an army person. You couldn't, on one day of a week, say, well, I don't feel like that. You know, I'll turn up on parade wearing my pyjamas. You know, it's not going to wash. Or you couldn't, when it comes to the battlefield, say, no, I don't feel like a battle today. Um, I feel like staying at home and reading a book. It, it comes with the territory of signing up, of being in the army. You know that's what you signed up for. Or if you're an athlete. It's, all sorts of things change if you decide to be an athlete and take it seriously and play in the top league, as it were. Uh, your whole lifestyle is going to change. You no longer eat the things you might have eaten. You put yourself through enormous physical stress, etc., etc. You can't sort of suddenly decide you're going to have a month of cream teas morning, noon, and night, I imagine. Or if you're an ambassador of a country, you represent that country. You accept the terms of office that come with the job. When you and I decide to follow Christ, we accept that we belong now to a new family and that there's a new set of instructions, there's a new way of doing life that is God-honoring in that family and we conform willingly to it. Or maybe you can accept the picture, different one altogether, of going to a new country. When we go to a new country, uh, you're asked, do you have something to declare? Well, we do have something to declare. Our faith is what we want to declare. And then sometimes, uh, before you go through passport control, 
your baggage is inspected and you're told, actually, these things have got to be left out of this country. They don't fit what's allowed into this country. I sometimes think that when I became a Christian, one of the things that happened is uh, God the Father opened his arms to me and said, Rupert, come on, let's get together. But I had to let go of some things in order to run to the Father. And that's true of all of us, all of us who ever turn to Christ. Sometimes it's our attitudes that have to change. You know, Paul says elsewhere, hatred doesn't really belong in his God's new family. Sometimes it's our actions, greed or drunkenness. You can't carry those things through the baggage department into the new life. And Paul calls the Thessalonians out on this. And he actually singles out, which makes us, I think, rather uncomfortable. He actually singles out sexual behavior as a standout department where they need to stand out from the world. And there's a very good reason why he does this to the Thessalonians. He's writing from Corinth. And in Corinth, um, the biggest god or goddess outside of Christianity was Aphrodite. And she was the goddess, and part of the ritual was ritual prostitution. And part of the accepted behavior of Corinth, absolutely rampant right through the whole thing, was sexual promiscuity. And similarly, in Thessalonica, there was a goddess on a smaller scale, but sexual immorality was, was totally acceptable. That was the background that the Christians were living up against. And he says to the Christian followers, your behavior is to be different. And to us, of course, we resonate with this challenge, don't we? Because perfectly acceptable behavior in the world is in your face different than the kind of standards that Jesus and Paul is espousing here. And I don't think it's a total surprise that the church has lost its confidence in proclaiming these Christian distinctives. Why? Because it's such a minority path, an increasing minority path. There's uh, an old joke, but it, it rather makes the point. Uh, there's a, a story, an anecdote about someone who's sitting in exam, ever hopeful that they'll be accepted to join the police force. And they come to, they turn over the, to the last page of the questions, they've got about one minute left. And they're told about a hypothetical situation and asked how they would react to it. And the situation is that they're walking along the street, they're on the beat, it's about their fifth day as a police person, and they see a bank robbery happening on the right-hand side. And then they see a car crash happening on the left-hand side, and then marching towards them is a group of demonstrators who look angry and unruly. And they're asked, what would you do? With very little time to write anything, this candidate says, strip off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. And, and some followers of Christ seem to have decided, look, there's an overwhelming challenge everywhere I look. What's the way out of this? I'll take off my Christian uniform and I'll, I'll, I'll put on camouflage. 
I'll just try and mingle with the crowd. And one of the reasons that this is put forward as a strategy by some people is, well, look, if we become too distinct, the gap will widen too much and people of the world will never want to come into the, into the kind of circle of believers. But as a friend of mine once put it to me, he said, the church has leant over so far that it's fallen in. And actually, throughout the scriptures, the very opposite, the very opposite tactic is commended. We're to be as Christ-like as we can because there's an attraction in that. Whatever the distance between Christ-like behavior and what non-Christians should choose to do, there is an essential attraction to the glory of God. There's a key word that underlines this passage in the scripture, and it's a concept that seems to be in danger of being airbrushed out. And it's the word holiness, or the, con the idea of being consecrated. What does holy mean? It, it, both those words sound incredibly old-fashioned and dated, don't they? And that's probably actually why we don't use them. But what it simply means is anyone who decides to follow Christ is called out from the crowd, set aside, made distinct. And you are called, I am called, to a holy life. More than once in this letter, Paul says to the Thessalonians that they are to be holy and blameless. And I'm not sure that we explain that to people all that well when we invite them to make the decision of following Christ. It's a lifetime call to please God more and more. Paul says in a different letter, we make it our aim to please him. Do you? Do I? And I, I am so struck that when Jesus speaks about what it means to follow him, he doesn't flinch from putting it right out there. He's calling his followers to a life of self-denial. A life which is the opposite of self-service, serving him instead. And that extends to everything, every aspect of our behavior. How are we going to do this? Well, it's not going to happen accidentally. You and I just won't wake up one day and find ourselves living a life to please God. It's going to be an intentional decision every day. It's going to be inviting the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and minds. And we're going to need each other's help. I once saw a poster outside a church, or I read of it, and it said, why let the world get you down? Come on in and give the church a chance. And, and there's a danger in this kind of a passage of my sermon where it could sound like um, God is the abominable no man, that he kind of wants to pour cold water on all the things you enjoy most. There is a price to following Christ, but the reason we let go of things is so we can embrace him. The reason that we let go of the things that Paul says we shouldn't be doing is not because he's a killjoy, but it's to release us into the presence of the Lord. 
I can only say, of course, there are many people that we know who make a choice, really, in their lifestyle choices that they're not going to please God. And they just sort of hold out in this department or that department. I would say it's an ongoing process the whole time. You won't meet a perfect Rupert until I'm before the Lord face to face. So there's going to be improvement every single week, every single day, one hopes. But if the Holy Spirit were to put his finger on an aspect of your life and say, this needs to change, I hope that you'd want to say yes. I hope that you'd say, with the help of others, I'm really going to try this. And, and this is how the process works in every area, every department. It might be our sexual behavior, how we relate to others, but as I said, it could be attitudes. Um, it could be all sorts of things, but we are a work in progress and we need to make the fundamental decision, am I living to please God? Okay, my last point, my last point is this. Paul says to the Thessalonians, that they are to grow more. Make a decision to grow more. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it's very striking in this letter that more than once Paul says, the things I'm asking you to do, you're already doing. You're already living to please God, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. But I'm asking you to do this more and more. And I suspect, as, as I look around with my one-eyed vision here, that um, for most of us in this building, if not all of us, and who am I to judge, that we probably are already doing the bulk of this stuff. But we need to encourage one another to do it more and more, to grow in what we're already doing. Faith, if you like, is a little bit like muscles the muscles in your body, that the more you exercise them, the more strong they get and the bigger they get. I remember hearing one church leader talking about in the whole area of giving. Giving's a very good example where obedience is costly. And who hasn't gulped the first time that you ever heard about tithing, giving a tenth of your income? And he said that he and his wife decided that each year they would increase they're giving by 1% to the Lord. Now, I don't know how that worked out mathematically because, you know, if they lived over 50, they're getting in quite serious places. But um, it, it was an adventure of more and more, do you see? And just in case you think that um, I'm trying to load more activism into your diary, that's not where what I think Paul is talking about is heading. But it is intensifying and growing in what you're already doing. So let's think of some areas. Prayer. Um, are you trying to develop your prayer life? Or think about encouraging other people. He, he says they were doing this, but they need to do it more and more. Or I think hospitality. If, if there's an area where I think the church in general um, has suffered post-COVID, it is this area of hospitality that there seems to be a, just a general lack of confidence in inviting one another over the doormat. Which is why actually on November the 13th, Sunday, November the 13th, we're des designating it at Hospitality Sunday at St. Mike's. And what we hope will happen 
is um, that as many of us in all three congregations as possible uh, will indicate to the office, I, I'm willing to go out, I'd love an invitation out for lunch, or, and also I'm willing to have other people for lunch. And we hope that um, as many of us as possible will tick both boxes, as it were, and that in the office they will mix and match and we'll have a chance just to get to know each other and spend time in each other's company because we need to relaunch and press on just in hospitality. I think never before in my lifetime have the words in the Hebrews been more pertinent when they said, let's not give up meeting together. You know, post-COVID and online services, a lot of people have not so committed to meeting together face-to-face. But I would say, if we're going to grow in Christ, we need to do this more and more. I love, don't you, meeting people who have walked the walk following Christ over a long period of time because they encourage us so much. In my dream world of ideal church, which can't really happen because it just can't, I would have a church where everybody, whatever stage they're at, has someone 10 years older than them who can encourage them, walk the walk with them, and speak wisdom into their life. And the reason it can't happen is because you will reach an age where there will be no one 10 years older than you. But we learn so much from each other. And I'm encouraged so much by people I've met and have known who in their old age are trying to follow Jesus more and more. I heard in the course of last week how a member of my former congregation in Cambridge unexpectedly died in, in, I think, the late 70s or early 80s. But what I was struck by and was just found so impressive was that um, just that afternoon they had journeyed into the centre of Cambridge on a bus to meet with a couple of students that they were mentoring week by week, just meeting to encourage. And I thought to myself, well, it's an amazing uh, quality of Keith's life that he was still pressing on. More and more he desired to see the kingdom come. Friends, to live a life as I'm describing is costly. And if you decide to live it, that you've committed your life to Christ, that you're going to behave as a follower of Christ, and you're going to invest in doing this fruitfully more and more, you're going to find it very costly. And at some point... The question will arise in your mind, is it worth it? And I want to end with a true story, which I hope illustrates why it is worth it. And the story concerns an American who at quite a young age felt the call of God to go to Africa from his comfortable home in America and to spend his time there as a Christian missionary. And he did this for many, many, many years. Eventually the day came when he was to return to his own country. And he boarded the boat and it was a long trip. On the same journey, on the same boat, was the president of the USA. And it was President Roosevelt and he'd been on a vacation to Africa to shoot game. And as they came back to New York and they went past the Statue of Liberty, it became clear that there was a reception committee standing at the quayside 
and there were bands playing and there was great hullabaloo going on. And actually, the returning missionary was vain enough to think, oh, I wonder if that's for me. How nice. But he wouldn't have told anyone that. And actually, it soon became clear as people disembarked, no, this was for the president. The president and his entourage disappeared with the crowd, the razzmatazz stopped. And uh, the missionary, with his suitcases, all his worldly goods, just stood, uh, having disembarked, and there was absolutely no one to greet him. And as you can imagine, he was tremendously deflated and booked himself into some kind of a lodging. And uh, he got on his knees and he really vented his frustration to God. And if you've ever been angry with God or disappointed with God and you've poured out your heart, you'll know that a time comes when you run out of words and you run out of energy and uh, you run out of fuming, basically, and you have to stop because you've just exhausted yourself. And the time came where this rant came to an end. And when his rant, which had gone sort of more or less like this, I don't get this, God. You know, I, I have been faithfully serving you for years and years and years. I left my family behind. I left my home behind. I went and lived in discomfort all those years. And I come to New York and look, nothing. And the president, he just goes abroad and he shoots some game, comes back home, and he gets a ticker tape parade and all, of, all this jamboree. Where's the justice in that? And when his kind of fuming ended, he felt, just felt, it was as if God was just gently saying to him, ah, but you see, the point is, you haven't come home yet. You haven't come home yet. And for those of us who make a lifetime decision to follow Christ, you know, when you come home, that's going to be when the Father levels with you eyeball to eyeball. And when he says, well done, you will be satisfied. You know, I, I don't know any of us who when our earthly parents if they ever did this, when they looked you in the face and with sincerity said, well done. I don't know any of us that don't find that moving. There's something you know, very heartwarming about it and affirming and it, and it peps you up. How much more then when God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit should look us in the face and say, well done. And I know they will. And I want to encourage us to head for that territory with everything that's in us because you will not be disappointed on that day. On that day, you and I will not be saying, I've been shortchanged. No way. No way. But if you compromise on any of the points that I've mentioned today, you will so wish you hadn't when that day comes around. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the instruction of the scriptures. And thank you that they're written for our encouragement, our upbuilding, and to give us hope. And we, we pray, Lord, that we would hear the hope that's offered us today. Thank you for calling us into your family. Thank you for encouraging us to live lives that are distinct. And thank you for equipping us to follow you faithfully more and more. And we pray that that's exactly what we choose to do.
In Jesus' name, amen.